This podcast examines issues on violence driven by gender inequality, a global health problem that is likely to have personally touched the lives of our listeners. Please take care while listening and email us at svri at svri.org for resources. Welcome to another episode of the Sexual Violence Research Podcast from the SVRI. I'm Aisha Margo. And I am Elizabeth Dartnell. Our vision is to see a world free of violence against women and violence against children. And in this podcast, we learn how to make that vision a reality. In today's episode, we're exploring the theme of power and control in research. You will hear from Joy Watson, a feminist researcher and writer, Etoile Pinda from the International Women's Forum, and Alicia Wallace, who is head of Equality Bahamas. Firstly, what do we mean when we talk about power and control in research? Let's hear from Joy. Basically, when we're thinking about power and control in research, we're looking at that interlocking matrix of oppression that characterizes the intersections of various markers of social identity. So the things like race, gender, class, disability, level of education, sexual orientation, and so on. And so I see this as a questioning of the the normalized hierarchies concerning the production of knowledge and the status of truth claims. When I think about this, I, I like to think of Rob Nixon's concept of slow violence, where you know, he sees, he describes slow violence as being a violence that occurs gradually and out of sight, um, a violence of delayed destruction dispersed across time and space, and additional violence that is typically not viewed as violence at all. And so in the context of research, we see this slow violence and epistemic violence, the valuing, the resourcing, and the platforming of Eurocentric and Western research. And I guess that the practical ways that that plays out is, you know, when we have, we have to ask certain questions like, how does money flow to and through research projects? Which stakeholders have decision-making powers? Who gets financial compensation? Who owns data? Who, in fact, is doing the research? Um, what is the motivation and and have impacted communities participated? Were they involved in even developing the research question? You know, often that doesn't happen. Is the chosen methodology culturally appropriate in getting answers to the research question? And then I think very importantly, does the research make clear how the findings will contribute to social change? And even, you know, I guess in the data collection processes, does it prioritize the safety and well-being of the people having their data collected? Do we think about the power dynamics um, within collecting data and try and equalize them? And in our analysis of all of this, does it allow for an intersectional analysis? Does it put power under the lens, I guess? So what are some of the practical ways power can impact research? Alicia says in so many cases, including within her own work with Equality Bahamas, power is often associated with funding. Whenever we're talking about power, I think we have to talk about money and where money comes from. For us in the Bahamas, we've definitely seen that we need to start with where the money is coming from and how funding works, who gets the funding to do research. And usually it's people who get to parachute in from other countries who tend to have their own preconceived notions about the country, about the region, about how things are. And in many cases, their research is designed to give them particular answers. 
and to reinforce and to validate ideas that they already have. And many of those ideas are very dangerous, very harmful, very untrue. So we have to be really careful about that. And it's often white people, foreign people, and people who have something to gain outside of assisting people in crisis, preventing crisis, and ensuring that recovery is equitable and is actually responding to the specific needs of specific groups of people. You know, it's usually academics and researchers and not impacted people who are being centered in this work. And often the people who have been doing work on the ground, non-government organizations and community organizations get left out because in many small countries, the idea is that, you know, foreign people know better. People with really high degrees know better than we do, but we have the context, we have the understanding, we have the language, we know the ways that we need to ask questions, we know who needs to be engaged, we know the people who are made invisible or even more invisible by crisis. So for example, in the Bahamas, when we were dealing with the aftermath of Hurricane Dorian, within our organization and the people that we worked with, we knew that we specifically had to seek out people of Haitian descent knowing that in many cases they were not presenting at hurricane relief centers to get supplies. They were not being assisted. They were being turned away and they were afraid that having lost their physical documents, that they might be in in danger of deportation. So it's really important that we're talking to people who are on the ground, who understand the context, who are already connected with communities. That's really where the power is. So it's really about changing our definition of power, It's changing the way that we distribute power and recognizing the expertise that is already in the country, ensuring that we are not, in addition to invisibilizing and further marginalizing people who are impacted, we're not also pushing people who are already doing the work to the margins. So we heard Alicia mention fly-in, fly-out researchers there and the role they can play in the power dynamics. Etoile says she saw the effects of this firsthand during relief efforts following Hurricane Dorian in the Bahamas. The Bahamas in particular, and I would point out that for at least every other small island developing state, we have such limited human resources in our countries to start off with. And when you get inundated with really honestly well-intentioned individuals. They come in, they're coming to either try and help or do research that they think will lead to being able to help the people who are being impacted by that crisis. We in country do not have the bandwidth to be able to monitor and evaluate every single group that is coming in. It's just impossible. After Dorian, We had over 100 to, honestly, I would say probably closer to 200 organizations and UN agencies and this and that come in to provide assistance in quotation marks. This often involved surveys, surveys of all of these people who had just either lost their homes, lost their family members, lost their children, lost their spouses, lost their livelihoods for sure. These people are in such trauma, in such a place of concern, that organization after organization wanted to collect their own data. So if there's one piece of advice I would put out there is do better coordination. We tried within the country, obviously. We we had OCHA in from the UN and there was cluster setups. It still did not change the fact that individuals were being re-stressed by being asked questions by multiple organizations. And then just like Alicia pointed out, 
what are you doing with that data? Do you really need to ask 100 questions of these people or can you get to the nut of it with 15 so that you're not re-traumatizing them? I think that's an important thing. I'd also say just be very mindful that if you're going to be publishing these results and you maybe don't know the context, so just like Alicia pointed out, if you do not know where the undocumented migrant populations who were impacted are now living and you're not including them, then probably your estimates of violence against women and other types of things are wrong and you are underestimating them. And you are now creating a public record that others are going to utilize to say that this is an accurate view of what is happening in that crisis. So make sure that you are teamed up with those local CSOs. So important. Do not just rely on your international expertise. And also, in just a practical sense, don't just be relying on the one government employee who's so stretched that they really probably cannot give you enough of their attention to give you full answers on it. You've got to really reach out to the ones who know, which are the ones in the community, local community leaders. So for us, we've got our little settlements in each island. Those are the individuals you need to be talking to, not just at central government level. And I'd say that's true throughout the whole region. As we are all too acutely aware, the funding allocated to research on violence against women and violence against children, especially in lower middle income countries, is disproportionately and unethically low. So what can be done to address this imbalance and redistribute power and control? From Atwell's experience leading large country studies in lower middle income countries, she says research should be seen as an investment rather than a cost. If we think about the global estimate is that violence against women and children is equal to at least 2% of GDP. So for us in the Bahamas, if that is considered the cost of what violence against women is, that's $270 million. This is a lot of money. If we want to get national governments interested in why it's important to invest in research, which is going to lead to tangible changes in preventing violence against women and children and ensuring more efficient and effective mechanisms to assist families who have gone through such trauma. I think we have to talk the money because the money is how people move, right? So if we can say that by doing this research, we're going to reduce even 10% of those costs of violence against women in that country, for us, this is $27 million. That's a real number. Politicians like real numbers. So for me, that's always going to be one of my I'd say my recommendations, Alicia probably has maybe a different twist on on some of the the things that could be done. Yeah, I definitely recognize that the money, the numbers make a big difference to people in in decision-making positions, the people who have that kind of power and influence. At the same time, I really want to see research and reports that balance that with humanity, with human rights. Because if our argument for everything is always money, then we lose the side where people are inherently valuable beyond money, beyond what they produce, beyond their ability to reproduce. And this has always been sort of a tricky space for me as a gender expert, as someone who is working on ending gender-based violence, You know, recognizing that the numbers do matter. At the same time, I want to make sure that when we talk about those numbers, we don't forget that they're connected to people. And the same thing comes up when we talk about violence and harassment in the world of work, right? The same thing happens when we talk about the the health consequences 
of domestic violence, of sexual violence. We talk about these numbers, we talk about the strain on the country, but interestingly, on the other side, we don't talk about the contributions that women and girls are consistently making with their reproductive work. We don't talk enough about unpaid labor, like domestic and care work, which also has a dollar value. Uh, but we do have to consistently talk about some of the mechanisms that we have to help us, like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, like the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, like the Convention on the Rights of a Child. Like We have to hold these two things at the same time and make sure that we don't make the one that's about systems more important than the one that's about people. We have to consistently and intentionally be putting people at the center of this work. Joy adds that one of the best ways we can take back power and control within a research setting is to center women's voices in the research we produce. I think that the kind of challenge for feminism remains one of how to hold conceptions of difference and inequality in the research frame. And I think that, you know, critical, I guess, to this idea of transformative redistribution is how do we support the researchers doing this work? And, you know, the recognition that the, our identities as researchers are very connected to who we are as, as people. So that intersection of professional and personal identities has implications for how we are present in the research that we do, what support structures we need, what our political reimaginations need to be. When, when I think about feminist research in terms of, of trying to shift power. I think that we also very centered on the resourcing of doing feminist research. And specifically, I guess that, you know, this particularly struck me at the, the SVRI forum that we um, got to have in the aftermath of, of all the lockdowns and, and restrictions on movement um, in 2022, how very important it is to, and I'm talking now as researchers from low and middle income countries specifically, to have the spaces, the physical spaces, the virtual spaces, where we're connecting and sharing ideas, talking about our experiences, thinking about our strategies, um, digesting our work, building solidarity, building relationships. Like This is so pivotal to growing our power and, and claiming space both in academic and policy spaces. I guess on the on the downside of that, spaces like the SURI Forum only happen every two years. So how you know what are the ways of having this conversation being part of our kind of ongoing process of being and working? Um, how do we use the power of that connection in very strategic ways? You know, in ways that are as big as the SRI Forum, but in smaller ways too, um, to think about how we challenge being othered in global policy and academic spaces, including sometimes actually in our own feminist spaces. So creating the space, the moment to breathe out, to think about how we untangle the many different threads that compose where, how, and who holds power and influence. Although, as Joy highlights, violence is so deeply entrenched in society and in social and cultural norms, this is often easier said than done. I guess that we have to start with what's often in our faces, which is the dismissal at times of feminist research or actually any kind of activist research as lacking vigor 
often, you know, being associated with some sort of bias. Yesterday I was in the bookstore and, and, and found this magical book on documenting. It's actually a, a book documenting photographs from the Fees Must Fall movement here in South Africa, an HSRC publication. It, it really got me thinking of the challenges in terms of the complexity of doing this work, that violence is historical. And so we're working against deeply entrenched systems. Violence is spatial. It plays itself out in everyday spaces. Violence is also institutional. It's deeply embedded in the political, economic, and social institutions. Violence is structural. It's deeply, deeply, deeply enmeshed in our society and and eradicating it, like the prevention work, the response work. It's such a long-term project. And often we, you know, we get really stuck in trying the magnitude of kind of imagining this long-term work and the end goal of where we want to be. But violence is also, in the context of this conversation, epistemological. So we're talking about the subordination of knowledge from the global south. And then I guess the obvious stuff about how violence is gendered and it's racist and it's classes. Um, and then at the very human level, violence is personal. It inflicts pain and suffering. And so when we are doing feminist research, we're trying to hold all these many different layers. And, and so there's so much to hold. And I guess that at times it can be overwhelming and that we can take strain in doing this work. So what can be done to shift and continue to challenge those mindsets? Alicia says change starts with action. It has to start with practice. It has to go beyond theory and planning. We have to actually do it. So in short, when we create these spaces, when we're doing this research, when we pull our teams together, ask who is missing, figure out why, make the space and create opportunities for those people to participate center the most affected people, and then make sure that their voices are heard within that space and that they're centered. It's the doing that's important. Just to say that I agree. And again, I will come down to practical things too. You know, a lot of these RFPs that come up to to do the research and do those types of things, you know, they're rarely circulated in the countries all that effectively. So it just means that, again, you're you're being maintained with often times in international group doing the research. So of course, the individuals that Alicia is talking about, they're not going to be present because they're not, the folks that are doing the research are not pulling from anybody within the country. So how do we change that? Can we make it be a requirement that you do have to include, again, I'm just going to say X, Y, or Z within your research teams, a representative of a CSO who's actually doing on the ground work or it could be individuals with disability or we are having, it doesn't matter what the, the particular category is. Again, I will stick by the fact that I think that until we sort of force how the funding is flowing, um, the funding will continue to go the way it's always been going. And I think we're not going to change mindsets as long as the money keeps on going the way it's been going. And how optimistic are each of our guests that a shift in power and control in the context of research and evidence building is changing? Let's hear from Alicia first. You know, I spent a long time being very proudly not optimistic. And then I had to look at myself in the mirror and ask, well, why am I doing this work every day? That doesn't make any sense if, not, if I'm not optimistic. 
And uh, a young artist in the Bahamas gave me language for it through a, a street project that she was doing where she was spray painting all over the place, hope is a weapon. And it made me more comfortable with this idea of hope and optimism as not being this dormant thing, but as something that that we wield. And so my optimism comes from my own commitment and my collaboration with people like Etoile and other people who are doing really important work in the Bahamas and in the region and all over the world, who are determined to make change ourselves, not just wait for someone else to do it, not just demand it, but to create it within the spaces that we occupy, the spaces that we create, and keeping in mind that winning is inevitable. Etoile adds that a recent project she's been working on in the Bahamas has left her feeling hopeful about the future. A project that, of course, funding came in through an international development agency, but we as Bahamians were the ones who were leading the project. And though as well, we were able to partner with an international NGO who does great work around the world, which is Global Rights for Women. I know I grew as an individual as a result of my work with them. Elise and I did a bunch of stuff that overlapped following Hurricane Dorian, but this was our first opportunity to work together. I'm optimistic because now I know so much more about what she and Equality Bahamas are doing. That makes me optimistic. So I think, again, for me, it's going to be continuing to have these conversations. Going to your conference last year in Mexico, that left me optimistic. Talking to so many incredible individuals, all coming together to, to really try and change this space. I am optimistic. And yes, after Dorian, I cannot tell you, the hope is a weapon really became uh, almost like a power mantra within the Bahamas after being so devastated. And it, it sits deep in our souls, I think, those words. So yeah, 100%. I love that we can bring it into this conversation. So thank you, Lucy, for having raised it. And Joy agrees. There is much to be optimistic about. As much as the sort of political background or backstory has been the sort of resurgence of conservative, problematic um, values and systems globally. I think that, you know, that, that when, when I think about the sort of single biggest accomplishment of feminism, it is the sort of consciousness work that has happened with younger people and how they take the agenda forward of wanting to call out to know more about, to take on, to challenge violence against women. And so we're seeing, and it's really quite, you know, exciting, um, phenomenal. We see these increasing um, social movement processes in place, collective identities emerging, common purpose, commitment to cause. We saw that moment, again, a South African example on campuses where young women were calling out rape and sexual violence and sexual harassment and in very um, visceral ways and, and claiming agency and power. But I also think that, you know, you need that person who's going to give you the, the woohoo factor thing, the kind of magical, mystical <laughs> reason to believe. <laughs> and luckily you have me who's going to completely give you the woohoo which is, I think, that in some ways, like doing this work can make us very depressed and it can make you want to put your duvet over your head and spend your days in bed. But we mustn't do that. We must get up. We must collapse our temporal realities so that we almost take the present tense 
And we see the future arriving in this moment. We see it, we believe, we make it happen. Thank you so much to our guests, Joy Watson, Etwell Pinder, and Alicia Wallace for joining us on the podcast. I am Elizabeth Dartnell. And I'm Aisha Margo. You've been listening to the Sexual Violence Research Podcast by the SVRI. To find out more about our vision, visit svri.org. To free the world of violence against women and violence against children, we need to connect, we need to learn and to share. So please subscribe, like and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this episode far and wide. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.